afternoon, morning, morning, evening, whichever uh, is relevant to your time zones. As usual, we have uh, uh, attendees uh, at this dialogue from uh, from a wide uh, swath of geography, um, and I think it uh, highlights the obviously the continuing interest in uh, in the. COVID-19 epidemic, pandemic, uh, and also uh, we're hoping to get into some of the questions that might be especially relevant for the audience, which is probably slanted a bit towards people that uh, see and treat HIV infection because uh, there's still some ongoing issues about uh, the interaction of those, uh, of those two uh, viral infections. Uh, I'm Paul Balberding from uh, UCSF. Uh, as usual, we have our family of, uh, of dialogue uh, members today. Um, I'll just uh, go uh, in the order that I see them on my uh, introductory screen. Uh, Peter Chin Hong from UCSF, Carlos Del Rio from Emory, and Bonnie Maldonado from Stanford. And maybe have them each give a little bit more of an introduction to themselves, starting with Peter. Hi, everyone. I'm Peter Chin Hong. I'm an infectious disease doctor uh, specializing in immunocompromised hosts, infectious diseases, transplant, etc. Um, I'm also the associate dean for regional campuses at UCS School of Medicine. I've taken care of COVID patients. Uh, we've been involved in a lot of the therapeutic trials, yeah. and I've seen this evolve cra uh, crazily. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, Carlos, uh from Atlanta, welcome. Yes, thank you. Uh, Carlos Del Rio, I guess I'm the only non-West Coast participants here. <laughs> uh, Carlos Del Rio from Emory University in Atlanta. And again, I know longtime HIV uh, physician and researcher, a co-director of the Emory Center for AIDS Research and uh, involved in HIV prevention and care clinical trials. But you know, since COVID, been doing a lot of COVID, both uh, therapeutic and vaccine studies and been you know, very active in, in media and in social media and in and, and writing, uh, you know, pieces and op-eds, and most recently uh, one in JAMA last week that we can certainly discuss further. Yeah, ni nice nice paper, Carlos. I'm sure we'll we'll get to that. So Bonnie, another uh, West Coaster, welcome. Hi. Yeah, hi, everybody. Bonnie Maldonado, and I'm a Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Development and Diversity, my other role um, at Stanford School of Medicine, but I'm a, a, a professor of global health and infectious diseases, spent most of my career doing prevention of mother-to-child transmission of HIV trials in the US and Sub-Saharan Africa, and more recently on other vaccine or preventable diseases, measles and, uh, and uh, polio. And then of course, jumped in with both feet into the COVID vaccine and antiviral world. So thanks a lot. Yeah, and, and Bonnie, is, as she mentioned, uh, representing in part the pediatric uh, side of things. And I, I think her, experience with vaccine preventable uh, diseases might very well come into play when we talk about, um, as I'm sure we will, monkeypox, uh, the relationship to smallpox, the relationship to vaccines, and, and all the rest. So uh, as usual, uh, this dialogue is organized by a spectacular group of people at uh, International Antiviral Society USA, um, uh, Donna Jacobson uh, and and and, uh, and and the staff that that she supervises um, and and Jose, welcome to uh, to this as as well. So uh, the 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 way this works, I think a, a number of people uh, have been uh, uh, with this dialogue before. Uh, you can ask questions in the Q and A. Uh, I have a, a group of questions 
that uh, we collected from participants beforehand. I'll uh, try to uh, get to those. Uh, we'd like this to be as responsive to your needs uh, as, as possible. Uh, we believe this is uh, appealing to a clinician audience, and so obviously clinical management uh, and questions that ar arise in the context of clinical care are where we hope to be. Uh, but we also, uh, we found as we do this that we usually have enough time to, to watch the Q&A and chat screen. So if you have a question, uh, enter it in the Q&A. I can't promise that we'll get to all of them and I'll try to edit and group them as seems appropriate, uh, but, um, but we'll, we'll take it from there. So I'm already getting a chat that my audio is not doing so well today and I've got a new microphone that's probably causing me problems. So I'll just try to get a little closer to my screen hoping that you can hear me, but if you can hear the other guys, that's more important. But anyway, so, uh, so let's, uh, let's go. So I, I, I mentioned um, that there are a number of issues. Um, and one of the ones that, that I know is on a lot of people's mind is kind of where we are with this, you know, the yet more variants, um, BA4, 5, kind of when, when's, what's the end of all this? Uh, somebody want to start my, by giving me a quick uh, rundown on, on the current epidemiology of variants and kind of what's happening across the country. Um, maybe, I don't know, Peter, do you want to start? Sure. So essentially, we're seeing flavors of Omicron right now, and people are calling it the party of five. So BA1 January, uh, BA2 and its offspring, BA2.12.1, BA2.12.1. Um, is probably the dominant uh, variant right now, a sublineage in the United States. And then uh, BA4 and BA5, to round out the party of five, are in the wings. The reason why people are a little bit nervous about BA4 and BA5 is that first start seeing it in South Africa in February. Uh, the thing with South Africa is more than 90% of the population is immune in some way, uh, although about 30% vaccination to in infection acquired um, you know, in the community. But nevertheless, they went from a few hundred cases to thousands of cases, not really severe. And then we've seen it march to Portugal in particular. So BA4 and BA5 is responsible for the huge uh, outbreak in Portugal right now, other parts of Europe. UK is kind of starting to dominate. It's already in the wastewater and, and cases in, SF, in the country. And the rate of increase is high, but BA2.12.1 uh, is still the most dominant. But people are worried that four and five, which spike proteins look very, very different. And that's why more reinfections likely are going to eventually dominate. Um, the, the, interesting, Peter. And I think I'm sure the follow-up question that everyone would have is, okay, we, we, we hear what you're saying about transmission. What about clinical uh, impacts? Are we seeing, uh, is that getting worse again? Uh, what, what, what's the nature of the disease that we see with these new variants? I think with the new variants, the nature is um, very uh, the same as the other flavors of Omicron clinically so far. Uh, initially, South Africa saw a bump in the pediatric hospitalizations on young people too, but it was really similar to when B Omicron first came there. But eventually, it kind of settled down and wasn't, and it's thought not to be more serious uh, clinically than the others. So it's not like a new strange variant that's causing more serious illness. It's mainly. Uh, you know, causing more in breakthrough infections. 
And when in the United States you isolate everyone for at least five days, it's leading to a lot of disruptions in the community. So, Paul, let me just make a comment there. Yeah, yeah, we went from, so we did go from the strong messaging appropriately of this is a, a, a pandemic of the unvaccinated to now a pandemic of the unvaccinated plus the vaccinated who are unboosted. So I think that's really the next step that we're sitting in. And we've all heard about booster recommendations. And the questions now are, how are we going to reassess uh, the booster necessities given that fourth, second boosters are only really uh, uh, restricted to a very select group? And when when are we going to start that? So um, FDA will be addressing that at the end of, Jan of June. Uh, they're going to start talking about strain selection. But unfortunately, my understanding from them is that their discussion is going to be for fall strain selection. I think we really need to start thinking about how can we expand boosters for others? Because while most people are going to be fine, as Peter said, we still have uh, individuals who are still going to wind up with severe illness and we still have, don't have the predictive capacity to know who those people are going to be. Got it. And Carlos, what are you seeing in Atlanta? Same issues there? Yeah, it's uh, very similar. But I would say, you know, there are a couple of issues, uh, Paul, and would love to hear what, what Peter and, and, and Bonnie have to say. Since the emergence of Omicron, really the, the rapid way in which this virus has changed is, is something that I'm just not used to. I mean, we, we're not used to viruses changing this rapidly. I mean, the, this yeah. is very unusual. And this is really, and increasingly, the, the, the virus is becoming more transmissible. And therefore, you are going to confront this virus. And you, know, you are going to be exposed to this virus. And people tell me, well, you know, I, I still continue to mask and I've done all these things and yet I got infected. Why, why, am I doing something different? And I said, no, it's a different virus. And I think because it's a different virus, we need to be aware of that, that you're likely going to get infected. I think eventually we'll all get infected. And if you're going to get infected, you're better off if you're vaccinated and boosted. And my concern is that only about 60% of the U.S. population has been boosted. So we have a large proportion of individuals who have not been boosted. And many people who have not been boosted, what I hear as an excuse is, well, you know, this is over. And I think we have a lot of confused people out there. This is not over. There's still a lot of transmission. And the most important thing you can do right now is to get boosted. And I just worry that, you know, our vaccination rates in the U.S. are, are flat. We're not vaccinating people anymore. We're not boosting people anymore. We're seeing this in the rear view mirror when it's still staring straight at us in, in our eyes. Can I give yeah. you a, a modifying comment to that? I, yeah, I really ahead. love what, where this is going, but I think Carlos's point and, and Bonnie's comments are right on. And I've really been worried about the unboosted population. If you look at the death data during Omicron, the proportion of vaccinated people dying is increasing, still more unvaccinated, but it went up to something like 40% of the deaths uh, unvaccinated during Omicron. And of those deaths, uh, they're more that, you know, the majority are unboosted and over 65. So, so let me, can uh, I make ahead, a quick Bonnie. comment about the virus? Sorry, Paul. No, 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 so no, that's fine. We, we have a paper that we've just submitted. Uh, we did, uh, we have household transmission studies going on here as other people are. We were able to pull samples and sequence, do deep sequencing, uh, not, well, ample based sequencing, not whole genome, but of uh, sections of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus that we were seeing. So this is pre-Omicron, but one of the things that we were finding is that the virus is not mutating any differently. So at least if you look at an individual level, it's not different. So something else is going on here. 
at a population level, but the virus, the viral rate of mutation is steady. So maybe this, maybe to your uh, question, Carlos, is maybe the transmission rates are increasing the depth of, of uh, mutations, populations in which the virus is mutating. But I agree, this degree of mutation is unprecedented. So uh, one, one insight I had, uh, I, I'm vaccinated and everything, and I'm very careful. And when I go out, I wear a mask. But I found myself just yesterday uh, coming out of the grocery store, not wearing a mask. And it's like, it, it just is so hard, I think, to maintain the vigilance that, uh, that we know is necessary. So even, even those of us that are deep in the middle of this, I think, have to kind of keep reminding ourselves um, as, as we were saying earlier, that this hasn't gone away, that it's still out there. Um, and I, I don't know, you know, there was some talk earlier in the, in the epidemic when the, the controversy about masking was going on. Uh, and some people were making the point that maybe masking um, actually decreases severity of illness. Any, any thoughts on that? I mean, we haven't heard, I haven't heard about that in, in a very yeah. long time. So Monica, Monica Gandhi and George that's what I'm thinking wrote that of. article, which I think was a really interesting hypothesis. And it was based on a nice review of the literature. I just haven't seen anything to follow up with that. And unfortunately, it would be great to be able to have a good study. I mean, we could be possibly do something if you followed a large cohort, but those are difficult studies to do, but, but it's a great idea. Great, great, great. Uh, so um, one of the one of the questions that I see in the in the chat is um, has to do with um, persisting uh, test positivity uh, after onset of COVID. The question is: um, Is it safe to go out in public if you're still testing positive two weeks after your onset? Um, with minimal ongoing symptoms. What do we know about the transmissibility of some of these lingering antigen test positive cases? Anyone wanna tackle yeah, that? Yeah, so let me just go back to the um, infection control work because um, I think all of us are doing that. I also had the infection control program at our children's hospital. And what we have seen throughout the pandemic is that, you know, and from the CDC is that the vast majority of transmissions occur in the first 10 days. And that's really why the guidance is what it is. And I don't think there's any new evidence that that's changed. So if somebody is still, and you know, somebody's still antigen positive, the problem there is, or, or PCR positive in particular, is what we're seeing across the board is the viral loads are infinitesimal. If And so we don't know whether those are live viruses or not. And most of the data suggests that they're not live. So if I were to be testing positive past 10 days and not immunocompromised, um, I suspect I would probably follow local guidance, but if you're wearing a mask and you're careful, you, you should be, um, you should be not be transmissible. So I don't know what the others think. So uh, Carlos, uh, Peter, any thoughts on that? Well, you know, I, I, I mean, I agree with Bonnie. I think what we've learned about this virus is that you start being infectious about 24 hours or a little before that, 36 to 24 hours before you develop symptoms. You're most infectious when you develop symptoms and in the first five days, after five days, infectiousness starts really coming down. And after 10 days, you're unlikely to be infectious. Uh, I know people sometimes linger and you know, continue to test positive 12, 14, 15 days. They may be rare exceptions. I mean, I would tell somebody, if you're testing yourself at day 12 and you're still testing positive, I would personally continue to mask to protect, to pr protect others from getting infected. But the great majority of people are gonna be negative by day, day 10. 
So uh, one one question uh, that that I've had is, you know, as the variants have changed a bit, um, there's been at least some sense that maybe the the newer variants are causing less severe disease because there's less uh, uh, infection in the lower respiratory tract, maybe less of the of the real pneumonias. Uh, does the localization of this virus in the uh, in the uh, respiratory system has that changed? Do we know enough about that? Does that tell us anything about transmissibility? Well, we know that um, at least for Omicron versus Delta, that a lot of it happens in the large airways first versus the nose. That also relates to the question about diagnosis, and a lot of people have had experience with delayed diagnosis with antigen tests. And of course, there's been lots of social media stuff about combining the two. And in the UK, they actually have some guidance about combining the nasal swab mm -hmm. with the throat swab, yeah. although it has a little bit of an ick factor, not necessarily to me, because, <laughs> right. uh, but to others. So that's, that's kind of saying also that it kind of comes to the throat. I mean, we know from other IV infectious diseases like TB, laryngeal TB, et cetera, that you like super transmissible if it's like a lot of virus in that part of the anatomy. So that's, that also might you know, go with the transmissibility part too, um, as well as diagnostic. So that's, that's some of um, what might be going on. So Great. from the clinical perspective on the pediatric side, we have definitely seen since Omicron showed up more bronchiolitis and mm -hmm. croup, and that's very indicative of an upper airway virus. So that again is clinical evidence of what uh, Peter just mentioned. And we are seeing that in in vitro studies that the virus does have more of a tropism for upper airway uh, epithelium than lung epithelium. And, and do you think that's why we uh, are seeing less of the severe uh, clinical outcomes from this, Bonnie? You know, I think that's, that's likely, although I have to say that there was a recent call that I got from a colleague whose two grandkids under five, under five years of age and therefore unvaccinated, both were sick. And uh, the, the, the older one, which is still under five, was in the ICU with uh, SATs in the 60s and had a rapid onset within 24 hours of symptoms of an X-ray that looked like COVID pneumonia. So there are still exceptions, but in general, it's it's the case that most people now are either asymptomatic or have mild disease. Great, and I oh, know, you know again, and again, ahead, Carlos, and, yeah. and again, uh, you know, I, I caution people. I think that the message this is mild disease is is not necessarily the right message. I mean, if you're unvaccinated, it's still pretty significant disease. Part of the mild disease we're seeing is because people are more people are vaccinated, more people have previously had infection. So we need to be careful. I mean, you, you, the, the greatest number of hospitalizations and the greatest number of deaths occur during the Omicron surge. So I think we getting the message out, oh, this is mild, don't worry about it. When there's so much transmission, it's actually not necessarily the best message. And we need to be careful about how we word things. So one of the one of the questions that I that I knew we would uh, get uh, coming into this dialogue today is starting to show up in the in the Q and A, having to do with treatment. And um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Paxlovid and you know issues of treatment. I want to get into some of that stuff and, and really pay it some some attention today. Uh, but one of the one of the big concerns has been the relapse. And I, I, maybe I think we can let this go for a few questions. Uh, someone want to start a dialogue on uh, what do we know today about Paxlovid relapse and does this change how we decide well, to know, treat, how long to treat and the rest? I mean, I first will say that 
the one thing we know about Paxlovid is that it's still gro being grossly underutilized. I, I have talked to several people in the, over the last several days that tested positive that should have been candidates for Paxlovid and they call their primary care physician who said, you know, I don't think you need it. This is a mild infection. And then, you know, one of them is in the emergency room right now. So I think we need to get more education out there about the use of Paxlovid and how to use it because there's an ample supply and we're not using it. Again, we're a country of plentiful and, and, us, uh, on, and no use while in the rest of the world there's this scarcity and yeah. really makes me very upset. I mean, we have millions of doses of vaccines that are not being used and are being discarded in our country. And at the same time around the world, there are millions of yeah. people who have yet to receive a first dose. We have millions of thousands of doses of antivirals available that we're not using and the same time around the world, you can't get Paxlovid and other drugs. And I think we are, we, it's an American privilege that quite frankly, wastefulness that quite frankly makes me very upset because we need to use the resources we have. We're privileged and we need to use those, those resources appropriately. So the first thing is, you know, the test, the test to treat strategy of the administration is a really good idea, but is not working and is not being implemented and is not being done appropriately. And we need to do that better because Paxlovid needs to be used. So before we start worrying about, and also the problem again, it's language where, you know, I've heard people say it's not worth taking Paxlovid because there's relapses and you fail. You know, it's still 50 or 60% effective, 60 or, or more percent of people. We don't know really what the, the, the relapse rate is, but you know, from the data Bob Walker did, it may be as high as 48%. It's still, you know, a drug that works 52% of the time really well. It's still a very good drug. You, you're an oncologist. And you wouldn't stop using a drug just because it only worked in 50% of patients. Mm -hmm. So I really think that the first thing we need to do is, is use this drug. We have it available. And I think we need to study it more. We need to understand the relapses more. But we also need to understand there's certain things that we have to understand. How effective it is in people who are vaccinated. Uh, does it decrease transmission? Does it decrease viral load? What other impacts? Does it decrease the risk of developing long COVID? There's so many important questions to be answered that we really don't have the answer right now. So at this point in time, I'm giving the benefit of the doubt and I'm using the drug quite liberally, quite frankly. So, um, you know, Peter, I wanna to turn to you next. Um, and I want you to address some of those, those same issues. And, and frankly, Carlos, I think we can get back to some of the questions that you said we don't have data because I think we still wanna to, want to talk about them, but remind people what Paxlovid is. I think maybe we kind of forget what it has in it um, and, and this is an HIV slanted audience, so they know one of these drugs pretty well. Do you want to mention that just as a reminder? Yeah, so Paxlovid basically shuts down the virus factory. In other words, so it's spike protein independent. So I think that's, first of all, the most important concept. So it doesn't matter what variant you have. Uh, it really, again, uh, you know, it's almost like a nucleoside analog, like a, one of the building blocks that gets, um, you know, a fake building block. So it shuts down the virus factory and it inhibits replications, which might get back to that idea or what people are thinking about why some people are getting rebound. It's not really like, because it doesn't uh, neutralize the virus like a monoclonal antibody, but it, it's quite effective at shutting it down and your immune system has to wrap, you know, take care of the rest. So it depends on probably the immunity, what's going on. Secondly, and, sorry, and it contains a drug that uh, protonavir. Yeah, exactly. So I, I wanted that's what I, that was my secret question. Yeah. I, just remind the audience about ritonavir. I'm, I'm sure people remember it. Yeah, so ritonavir protease inhibitor um, uh, is at the last st stage of the virus. 
that, rep that reduction, taste, which taste, is putting that, it together. Uh, taste, you know, that, the UPS of the virus, as I always taste. tell my medical students. And it's a drug that all of us in HIV remember how bad it tastes, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, now it people, doesn't taste great. So now people taking Paxlovid tell you about this horrible taste in their mouth. Right. You know, they call it the Paxlovid mouth, but we used to right. call it the HIV mouth. It's ritonavir. It's, yeah, it's, somebody it's, is, yeah, described it as grapefruit juice plus a penny combined. Right. Uh, so by, I was, the, by I the way, just, is there any is there any uh, admonition about grapefruit juice and Paxlovid? Uh, I, I don't actually know. No, they have. There haven't been those. I was just in Europe, by the way, at a meeting, and and um, I brought. Um, and again, I should. This is full disclosure here. We had a, a Paxlovid with us because I wasn't sure if I'd be able to get it if I got infected. And I mentioned to my uh, physician and public health colleagues there that I had Paxlovid, and all of them said, "What's that?" They did wow. not know what well, it was. So I mean, this is a real, as Carlos, this is a real problem. I have so many rants about Paxlovid, a lack of prescribing. I can't even begin. But one major one I must mention is like one of our best pharmacists who had been so involved in COVID um, tried to get it for her parents or advocate for parents. So it's not just at the individual prescriber level, it's at the health systems level. Because right. in this particular health system, which wasn't ours, they wanted the 90-year-old dad who was already positive to come into the emergency room to get retested before prescribing Paxlovid. And again, these kind of barriers, they're ridiculous. And they are why people are still dying who could have gotten Paxlovid. Okay, so we've, we've talked about the, the problem uh, of lack of awareness. And obviously, I think that's, a, that's an educational issue that we should, uh, we should attack head on. Um, also, the systems issues that, that uh, you know, Peter, you and I participate, at least I do passively in the, in the town halls that UCSF puts on, and, uh, and, and some of those have addressed the issue of Paxlovid access and, and the kind of arcane uh, 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 rituals to try to, to try to locate it. I think there are some uh, some uh, systemic issues, but let, let's talk for a, a minute um, a, about uh, the effect of Paxlovid uh, on long COVID. Do we, Carlos? You said we didn't know anything. Is that is that true? What 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 do we think we might know about uh, about treatment and effect on on long COVID? Well, you know, I mean, we don't know what the cause of long COVID is, but assuming that it's a combination of the virus or the immune system. I mean, as, as you know, as somebody from coming from HIV, as, as virologists, you know that if you block viral replication, then you don't have the virus. And, and part of the reason it may be that that prevents you from transmitting to others, but it also prevents you from going on to develop long COVID. We know that, you know, there's at least one study suggesting, one published in Cell, suggesting that risk factors for long COVID include RNA viremia, right? And having not having the virus in your blood may be a, a really good thing to prevent long COVID because that's how then you get this, you know, the virus in your, to your lungs and into your brain and other organs that, that then lead to long COVID. So again, I, I think that treatment with antivirals is, is a good strategy. And when I think about management of this disease, I mean, we need to go all the way from prevention with, with vaccines and non-pharmacological measures to, to, to early treatment and early treatment and, and test and treat strategies, if well implemented, could really help us deal with this infection. But, but we have to really get this out there. Now, we, talking about the drug interactions, I think on the one side, yes, ritonavir has a lot of drug-drug interactions and, and creates a lot of anxiety in people. 
On the other hand, they're, they're only, it's only for five days and most drugs you can actually manage. And there are very few drugs that there's a, a, an absolute contraindication. So, you know, you're taking your statin, stop your statin for the next 10 days and that's it. You know, you're taking your, you know, some of your blood pressure medicines, you may need to adjust the dose 50%. So working with not only your physician, but quite frankly, your pharmacist. Pharmacists are really good at dealing with drug-drug interactions. And I recommend to people looking at the Liverpool Drug Interaction website. It's really very helpful and really allows you to understand how to manage drug-drug interactions with, with Paxlovid secondary to the ritonavir. Uh, but, but it's something that we as physicians really need to, to, you know, to educate people about to how to use it. And the more we do that, I mean, I've been reading here in the chat some of the, some of the uh, people who, are, who have put in, and it really is very concerning. I mean, somebody says, I have at least three family members or friends who were tested, who are not prescribed Paxlovid by a physician when they had indications. And that is really something that we should not be seeing. One thing we also don't know in Paxlovid and, or other antivirals, and I'm very concerned about, is, is equity. We have no idea who's getting this drug. Is it getting to the right populations? Are we getting you know, underserved communities? And my suspicion is not. I think yeah, we're, yeah, we, uh, we may be seeing this drug go to wealthy white individuals when a lot of the disease is still happening in, in underserved communities. So health equity has to be a focus also what we do. And I'm just surprised that we have zero data out there at this point in time that I can find on who is getting Paxlovid just on simple right. age, race, demographics, yeah, zip code. Yeah, yeah. So um, let, me, let me present a, a case uh, to the three of you. Uh, this is a, a person you actually know, uh, who went to a recent uh, HIV conference. Um, he's very careful. He uses a mask all the time. He's fully vaccinated, da, da, da. Uh, but while there, he thinks in the buffet line, uh, he got infected. Uh, comes back, he's got symptomatic COVID, not very sick, but has it. Takes Paxlovid, full five-day course, um, and pretty quickly after he stops, he again becomes symptomatic. Um, so symptomatic relapse after treatment. Now, what do you think? Did, was, was he doing the right thing to take it? Um, uh, why did he relapse? And uh, is there any message there in terms of, uh, of what people should be doing? I, I think I know the your answer to this, but go ahead and, and tell us, because I think that's uh, that's part of this. Yeah, so let me just uh, say that uh, all of the things Carlos said are absolutely true, and uh, they appear apply to this case. I think one of the failures we've seen is the lack of additional clinical trials data. We really need to expand that pool. There should be a really good opportunity here to follow patients and see whether, for example, we need more than a five-day dose. Do we need a 10-day course? Um, what can we do to eliminate that additional um, rebound? Are those trials underway, Bonnie? I actually I should know, but but don't. There are trials underway, but again, we're not hearing any interim data. And I think just in general, because a lot of us are running trials, people are done. They don't want to enroll in trials anymore. The only trials where I've been lucky, fortunate right now to be involved with are the, vac the pediatric vaccine trials. Is those families are still anxious to get their kids involved, but when you're doing observational studies in particular, people are just not interested. We also know, by the way, from biodevelopment, we've been to get back to the antiviral part of IAS, 
um, I've been hearing misinformation that, oh, we're just focusing our dollars on vaccines and not on antivirals. And that's absolutely not true. If you go to the global biodevelopment websites, you can see that the vast majority of funds are being spent on antiviral therapy, uh, therapeutic trials. The problem is therapeutics are incredibly difficult to do. They take much longer than vaccinating 100,000 people and just waiting for it to see what happens. Right. So um, they are being done, uh, but uh, it is taking a while. And unfortunately, in the meantime, I think FDA has been very conservative in allowing people to get this drug. Um, so there's so many restrictions on your friend, for example. And then the question for somebody like that, if they were in a workforce, is now they can't go back to the hospital right. if they're a healthcare worker. So, um, you know, you saw that the response from CDC was, uh, don't take it <laughs> if you're not that sick. And so, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's a little bit perverse in my view. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. So, so I would, in uh, that patient, and, you know, is somebody who is, uh, you know, over the age of 50, who is, uh, you know, I think, you know, maybe a little weight, hypertensive, I don't know. I think he probably should have been prescribed Paxlovid. I think it's a good idea. You know, again, he's one of those that relapsed. I don't know. We know the reasons people relapse. Right, I really right, don't. Right. But, but I mean, as, as Carmen Faria is pointing out, we know of relapse in other viral infections. When you treat the flu, some people mm -hmm. relapse. So, so it's, not, it's not uncommon that this will happen. You know, it may be, I've heard some hypothesis that the, the virus decreases with the antiviral drug, but then your immune system has to kick in and there may not be so, you know, sufficient time for the immune system to develop our immune response if in those cases. So some people say, maybe you're starting the Paxlovid a little too early. Maybe you need to wait closer to the day five rather than start it on day one. Uh, I mean, I don't, I haven't seen data to support that, yeah, so I'm yeah, not yeah. doing that. But now once you relapse, what do you do? Well, you know, one pe some people will say retreat, give another five days. I don't think we have any data to go one way or the other. My experience has been in the few people that I've seen relapse, is they're not as sick when they relapse as they were the right. first time around. So I tend to not, I have not retreated anybody with Paxlovid at this point in time. I also not telling people to go on for 10 days of therapy. I think we have no data to support that. So I'm going with five days. And if you relapse, well, you happen to be one of those that relapses, but that's Peter, it. I have not retreated anybody. Great. Peter, what's your thought? Um, yeah. So um, I've definitely seen relapses in people with COVID without Paxlovid and people on Paxlovid. So first of all, like even in the last two weeks, I've heard of at least two or three cases of people with relapse with regular COVID. So I think early in the pandemic, we saw that being reported and it kind of fell off the news. And in the trials, there were the same number of people who relapsed in the, who got packs of it were in the placebo group too. So that's one guiding comment. I know that seems like everybody's relapsing, but I don't think so. Um, even if you look at Bob Walker's Twitter survey that of course, and he would be the first to admit it's not population-based. And in my own experience, probably about 5% or 10% of my own people I prescribed to had relapsed and they come in two flavors. One is the person who's just checking all the time and they went from positive to negative, but then back to positive, but they continue to feel better. And then the second is the people who get symptoms back, but they, like Carlos saying, Every single case that I've heard about in my experience has been milder and they just get over it over time. I, I think the concern is more about trans potential transmissibility right, right. rather than like being uh, anything bad happened to them. And like everyone said, I think 
we need to have more studies. I think Pfizer is actually doing a study on on vaccinating people on Paxlovid, but then they in December apparently they changed the criteria into having had a vaccine more than one year ago. So not sure what that means. And the UK might have some data soon as well. So I want to definitely want to get into vaccines next, but but before we completely leave Paxlovid, uh, Peter, have you retreated uh, these relapses or never, never? Okay, okay. and I advise so, against it at this time. So I think the bottom line from all this, and this has been a really nice discussion, is that um, it's we still really recommend it strongly early on, um, uh, five day course. Uh, Think about the barriers, think about those in advance, because it sounds like um, if you don't, you might run into roadblocks in terms of access. Um, I think we've identified a number of educational uh, 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 approaches that we might uh, take, and I'm thinking about this from the ISUSA organization. Um, but um, you might see relapses. If you do, it's unlikely that they'll be severely symptomatic and unlikely that you should uh, be in a situation of having to uh, retreat uh, after that initial uh, course, even in people with symptomatic relapses. So let's let's go on. So Kevin Carmichael, Kevin is a wonderful HIV doc um, uh, who asks, how are we to define boosted? You know, the, this, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm not very confused about it, but I think it's still worth uh, worth addressing. Um, so I just glanced at my vaccine card. I got my fourth shot, I guess my second booster uh, in, uh, uh, in the middle of, of April. Um, who's who's boosted? Who's fully vaccinated? Uh, what does all this mean? And uh, what what do we now recommend in terms of uh, vaccines and for whom? Any of you can start this yeah. discussion. So, you know, Paul, I think, so let's go back to the fundamental issue of what who should be, why do we boost people? And I think it comes back to why do we vaccinate in general? It really isn't going to be about preventing the sniffle, preventing the cold. It's preventing the luck, likelihood of severe disease, uh, hospitalization, death, and potentially long COVID. So the data and, and what we're, where we're trapped right now, unfortunately, is that um, we don't want to wait to see people start to relapse before we recommend boosters. So this is where we had that famous statement by the administration saying we'll have a booster by September where people, there was a little bit of a, of a you know, people being upset about uh, the, the policy uh, makers not being consulted before the White House made a statement. On the other hand, the idea that there were data suggesting that people were losing immunity was very important. So, uh, so we are at the point now where we have a, a very complex, and you can look at it on the ACIP. Uh, ACIP website. So go to CDC ACIP and you'll see a really nice pictogram. I, I'm on my phone right now. I can't show it to you, but it demonstrates for each age group and risk factor, how many doses are considered to be up to date. So if you're immunocompromised, you may actually be eligible for up to five doses of vaccine. Whereas for somebody who is younger and uh, not immunocompromised, it's three doses. So the, the range is three to five, and for the five year, healthy five-year-old, um, it's two doses plus one booster, and then there's a whole variation in between depending on how old you are and whether you have risk factors. So that's the current status, but of course, the big question is going to be how long are we going to need to keep doing this to keep ourselves from having severe symptoms after um, a new variant shows up? 
and our immunity wanes. And that's where the FDA and the CDC need to continue to do uh, nationwide surveillance and, and global surveillance, honestly, to take a look and see when our next booster is. I can honestly say at this point that we will very likely have a fall booster. I'm almost sure that that's gonna happen. A verb pack is gonna talk about that. And um, uh, it's all, the intent is that that will happen because we know this virus isn't gone. But the question is, what about expanding uh, second boosters to people who aren't at high risk? And that's another group that right now is still questioning. You know, I somebody I just talked to earlier said, I got my, my vaccine a year ago, my booster a year ago, what about me? Um, I'm not at high risk, but I don't, I don't want to get sick. So, that, so that's yeah, my own take. Right. And I, I, you know, I think we talked a little bit about kind of this feeling, um, uh, as Carlos said, it's all in the rearview mirror, uh, you know, it's all over. And I think that's reflected in the inattention currently to, to vaccine and, and boosting. I think, uh, I think, you know, we've gotten focused now. We, we talk, and, and even in this, even in this dialogue today, we talked more about Paxlovid and treatment. Um, but I think we need to, we need to uh, kind of a boot camp reminder uh, of the importance of vaccines. Uh, although it is getting confusing, you know, how, you know, what, what do you define and how long, you know, my, fourth dose was in April. If there's a, if there's a, if there's a fall uh, revaccine, should I be revaccinated? Um, and and I, I think we're going to need to do a really better job of, of communicating that to the public. I don't know, Peter, any thoughts on, on vaccines? Yes. I mean, I, I agree completely with everything Bonnie said, and I love how she brought it back to sort of the basics, uh, which is like as an ID doc too, I think three is at least the baseline magic number. And then you build from that because that's how the immune system works the best with a prime and then a boost. Of course, people were confused in the community and that's the messaging because when the booster first came out, we were like, you know, there was a big debate about whether or not it was needed at all. But of course, you know, compared to lots of other vaccines, that's how they work best. Um, so let, me, let me just let yeah. me interrupt, Peter, so, so that maybe we should be talking in a questioner is the same thing, the terminology of booster. Do you, should we just be talking about three shots? So, you know, I've had four shots, uh, not worry about two yeah. vaccines and two boosters. And, yeah. and maybe as we get more experience, that's the way we want to talk about this. I think so, because, um, you know, that booster becomes being less in this scenario with an evolving virus. And, and it's right. So when people say, I'm going to have an event and have vaccination as a requirement. They only talking about two shots usually, or like some requirement to get into, or to be in some uh, setting. And only there are some that say boosters is sort of like the new normal, but, but you're right. I mean, we should be considering who you are and, and what, and that's why the CDC uses up to date as a terminology, because it gets confusing to people. But also I think up to date also gets lost in the community because somebody might think they're up to date with just two uh, and that's getting people into trouble now. And I think complicating it is today's FDA meeting in a potentially a good way on Novavax. Um, and I'm sure everybody can talk about that, but it's, you know, old fashioned technology of protein subunit, which is supposed to hopefully appeal to people who are hesitant about mRNA, but might be interesting for mixing and matching to give the uh, immune system a broader repertoire of exposure. So that, that is kind of um, what so, I see. So, so one thing that, I mean, I, I agree with everything you both have said. I just think that I wish 
CDC, what I like the up-to-date recommendation, the reality is if you're, if you're talking about Omicron, you need to have three doses. Yes. You need to call, you need to call fully, I call fully vaccinated having received uh, three doses. Yes. I don't care what CDC says. I really think that in, in this age of Omicron, fully vaccinated should be three doses. And you're absolutely right. Places that are saying for this event, you need to be fully vaccinated. They're taking two shots as fully vaccinated and that's not sufficient. So, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate because there's so much, we're not using our resources the way we should. And that's a problem. So Carlos, that's a great point. But unfortunately, the other piece of this is the public health uh, messaging and the state-based, you know, one-off approach where in some states, they're actively discouraging people from uh, requiring vaccination to enter events. And in other places, you have to have them. And even here in California, depending on what county you're in, you either or and what the venue is, you may require or not require. So I think this national, the national approach has not been great. If again, my trip to Europe recently, I showed my card, my vaccine card for, I can't remember some event, but they said, wow, how come you have so many vaccines? Why didn't know people were even getting that many? So there's (laughs) just this, yeah, you know, I felt like we were really overdoing it here, but at the same time, you know, we are all of us here and all of you are seeing these cases popping up. It's not over. I have 30 kids in the hospital right now who have COVID, so it's not gone. So, um, any, any more thoughts on that? Um, so one, one, one other question that's come up. Peter mentioned it, and I think we should discuss the approval of, of, of the, the VRPAC talking about Novavax today, because I think that's a, it's really an exciting uh, new- Yeah, people will be vaccine. hearing about it in the news tonight, yeah, right? I hear about it in the news, you know, Novavax, a protein, Based vaccine is more of a typical technology, as Peter mentioned. Uh, I was one of the investigators of, of that study here at, at Emory. We did that study. It's, it's exciting to see finally getting there because it's taken a long time to get to this FDA review. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens next. Is it going to be something that is going to be available or not in this country? I mean, just because the FDA is approving it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to become available as one of the options that we have. I do worry, I would like it to be available because I do worry that the US right now is essentially a single strategy country. We are going mRNA vaccines exclusively. We are not using adenovirus vaccines. I mean, we never, you know, we never approved, we approved the J&J, but AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine never got presented to the FDA. So we don't have it here. So we are a one strategy country, which is mRNA vaccines. And the reality is we need to have a little more than one strategy. So and so so Carlos, tell us then a little bit more about the Novavax. Uh, what, how is it made? How is it different? Well, as as, as Peter said, uh, it's a, it's a more of a of a of a typical vaccine, which is a protein based uh, vaccine, in which you you take essentially proteins to the virus, and and that's the immunogen. So you're not don't have the mRNA going there. And so it's, it's not vaccine. genetically engineered, right? Correct. And it's a vaccine that gives you a broad cross-reactivity against Omicron and other circulating viruses. And it's giving us, in, again, it's a two-dose vaccine uh, as part of a primary vaccination series. And uh, there has been, uh, you know, there were multiple events of myocarditis reported and temporally related to this administration. So there were some concerns about having a higher rate of myocarditis than other vaccines, but doesn't that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, and uh, you know, of the of the six cases of myocarditis that occurred during the study, 
five were among males ranging in age from 16 to I think 67. Uh, so uh, could there be an issue that we're seeing with this vaccine? I mean, I don't know, but the reality is the rate of myocarditis is, was very similar in the placebo and then in the control arm. So I think it's not necessarily that being the case. So I do think it's a very effective, useful vaccine and one that I would strongly consider. I mean, if we're talking about a, a booster in the, in, in the fall, this may be the vaccine that I want to get in the fall because right. this is a very different strategy and something that will, will sort of stimulate the immune system in a slightly different way. So um, a, a topic uh, that our group talked about just a little bit before the call started was uh, the interaction between HIV and COVID-19. I definitely want to touch on that briefly. I want to get to monkeypox because I'm sure that there's still a, a lot of lingering questions there. But um, Peter, uh, anybody, uh, what's the bottom line on, on HIV and COVID? Does it change outcome? Does it change susceptibility? Uh, does it change long COVID? Anyone want to want to start talking about that? Well, so, so, so I'm going to start first by saying that, uh, yes, uh, and as part of this, the, the IAS USA is sponsoring, is having a full a, a course, a webinar on COVID uh, coming up, uh, I think it's on, on July 20th. And one of the talks is going to be precisely on, on, on COVID and HIV uh, given by, uh, by, by uh, uh, Rachel uh, uh, Bender Ignacio. And, and I think it's, it's a really important topic. So I can talk a little bit about it, but I would really encourage people, you know, July 20th from eight to one, it's going to be a, a full day course. Peter is also speaking, and I think it's worth uh, signing up for that course if you're interested in this topic. Great. Um, Great. So go uh, just so, so, so on the ISUSA.org uh, website, uh, we post all of our uh, upcoming courses. I think we'll do that at the end of this program as well. So, so, so let me let me go over this in a sort of a simple way. Uh, is there an increased susceptibility of people with HIV to, to COVID infection? And the answer is, is no, there's not increased risk of infection. There is increased risk because of, of who people with HIV are, right? I mean, they tend to live in in, in crowded conditions, they need to have, they tend to have underlying conditions that put them at risk, but HIV is not one of them. Number two, if they get infected, are they more likely to get sick? And the answer is also probably not initially. There's a very nice study when they looked at the reprieve cohort participants, 60% of them had infections that were asymptomatic. So there's a lot of asymptomatic infections in people with HIV. Now, among those that develop symptoms, yes, they're more likely to end up in the hospital and end up having severe disease, and particularly if they have a CD4 count below 350 or if they're not virally suppressed. But um, in fact, in the, in the CNX cohort, you know, history of a CD4 under 200 really increase your risk of, of having more severe disease. And the third point is, you know, and therefore that also increases mortality. And the third point would be around vaccines. Do they respond to the vaccines less well? And, and the answer to that is, again, depends. If you are an HIV uh, in, infected individual who, uh, who is, is virally suppressed and is, is doing uh, well, no, you're gonna respond just as well as anybody else. But if you happen to have a CD4 count less than 500, you are not gonna respond as well. And in fact, the vaccine efficacy, uh, it we lower if you have a low CD4 count. The paper that was just published today is a really interesting study of uh, of us, they looked at four, four cohorts and they compared 
persons with HIV to persons without HIV. And across all those cohorts, there was higher risk of breakthrough. First of all, breakthrough infection was low in all the, the populations. And this was during Omicron. They looked at really Delta and Omicron. This was from January to December of, of last year. And breakthrough infections were not very common. I think it was like, you know, 3% of the individuals, and this was over 100,000 people they looked at, had asymptomatic breakthrough infections. But among those with HIV, the risk of breakthrough infections was clearly higher in those with HIV than those without HIV, in particularly among those that had a CD4 count less than 200. So again, emphasizing that your patients with HIV should get vaccinated, we should put them in antiretroviral therapy to get their CD4 counts under 350. And if we do that, they're gonna be able to be just as well as if they didn't have HIV. Great. Um, I'm looking at the list of participants. I promise not to do this all the time, but I can't help but call out a few people. Sandy Lehrman, who is one of the heroes of the, of the HIV drug uh, development, uh, Mike Bush, Chris Petropoulos, others. Um, so um, we, get, we get a great uh, uh, range of audience. Uh, let's end with a few thoughts about monkeypox. It's been in the news, Peter. Uh, so what we hear is, you know, this is scary. This is like smallpox. Um, uh, and, you know, gay men are getting this. What's, you know, can you tune the temperature of the discussion down and tell us just kind of quickly what, yeah. what we're talking about? So, I, I mean, I would first of all say we shouldn't panic um, for the general person in the population. We should be aware. We should be curious. We should be wary of it, but not panicked and not worried. The second thing is that monkeypox is at the bottom of the totem pole with transmissibility. It's not really so far. And the dial gets moving, keeps on moving, of course. It's a zoonosis. So it's something you get from an animal really in its essence and its core. It's trying to find a rat or a squirrel or a monkey, but not a human. Human is just like an incidental host. But so far, and it's been amplified. And some people think, and we can get into this, for, that it's been sort of low level in population, amplified by possibly two raves, one in Belgium, one in Spain and Canary Islands, and people found all over the world. And because these lesions are uh, very, you can have asymptomatic, but the lesions when people have them look very atypical. They can look like syphilis, they can look like um, uh, chancroid, they can look like um, um, uh, herpes, uh, and or they may not be seen because they're in the anal uh, area. So you can't, you don't even know you have it. So then, uh, so atypical presentation so far, and the numbers keep on going up, but not exponentially. There are about a thousand uh, confirmed suspected cases now in more than 24 countries, including five in California, but you know, uh, and a bunch of other states. New York and uh, six in California. New York and, and California lead the, the country, one in Hawaii. Uh, so that's kind of where we are. We have therapeutics. Nobody has needed it before when we had an outbreak in 2003 with uh, prairie dogs, uh, pet owners. Uh, we have one, uh, antibody treatment. We have, and then Bonnie and Carlos can wax poetic on the vaccine yeah so that's that's kind of where we are okay bonnie uh you think about vaccines you your whole life well so we have a couple of years ago the fda actually we've been working on small uh, alternatives to the live smallpox vaccine for several years and two years ago three years ago actually now uh the fda approved and the cdc acip we voted on a a vaccine called Genios, which is an orthopox vaccine. It's a non, uh, it's an inactivated vaccine meant to essentially phase out the, the use of live active, live 
live uh, virus vaccines because they have an obvious uh, side effects, including myocarditis and other effects. So uh, these vaccines have been available now. And uh, the question really is, when do we need to use them? And at this point, they were really only licensed primarily for use in people who are exposed to animals. Um, we know, for example, in the uh, indigenous settings that the case fatality rate can be as high as um, four to 10%, but this is not the case in a developed setting in the kinds of situations that we're seeing now. Um, and as you heard from the outbreak that we experienced with prairie dogs being infected by African giant rats, when, which were imported as pets, um, there were um, a number of cases, but was well controlled with the usual um, mitigation that you're seeing nowadays, which is you know like public awareness from uh, pets that are imported from other areas. And in this particular case now, because of the raves, it's a very different mode of transmission, but the vaccines are available. We're importing more vaccines if we need them, but at this point, they're really primarily used for outbreak control or occupational exposure. So, so, so go ahead. So the, the, only thing, the only thing I would add uh, is, you know, the one thing that concerns me is, is, you know, while there are not a lot of cases, this is more cases that we've ever seen. This disease, you know, monkeypox has an R naught usually less than one. So if you remember, you know, the, the outbreaks tend to die. We have a case here and a case there, but you don't have a lot of transmission in non-endemic countries like ours. The fact that we're seeing this rapid rise in cases, again, it's a, it's a reflection of the social, the social and sexual networks in which this virus is being transmitted. So I really think that this is, again, for those of us working in HIV that we've worked for a long time with, a, you know, the, the affected communities, we really need to get education out there about, you know, monkeypox, about diagnosis, about how to rapidly enter, be, be you know, re recognize the lesions, get, uh, you know, don't have more contacts if you do, isolate yourself, and then, you know, notify your contacts so they can be vaccinated. Because yeah. if you get vaccinated within 14 days of being exposed, you can decrease significantly the risk of, of developing the disease. So we need to really get a, a, a very good public health response that brings in public health clinicians working with, you know, with affected populations and the community. And we have to mobilize that very quickly because otherwise you're not going to get there. I would encourage people to look at CDC Today, put what I think is a wonderful uh, patient information sheet and one that is very explicit, very clear, and one that I would really uh, encourage people to look at. Great, and we'll try to make that available. Uh, uh, Donna Jacobson has made a, the link to the uh, upcoming uh, COVID uh, HIV treatment uh, a dialogue as well. Uh, I know I'm. I've just decided I'm going to stop going to raves altogether. I just I've had it. <laughs> no more raves. Just put a little pause on it for a few months. Anyway. Right, right. Um, Until the monkeypox dies down. I'm just going to use headphones. <laughs> So I just, my, so I just, I just, so I just put in the chat the link to this, uh, the CDC uh, web, uh, the CDC information sheet that came out today, which is really very good. It's entitled <laughs> "Social <laughs> Gathering, Safe Sex, and Monkeypox." So, so we the, are, the last point, I just, ahead. the last point. Sorry, Paul. I just want, I can't get away without mentioning that this month we're also going to be talking about uh, pediatric vaccines for the under five. So we'll be right, considering right. Moderna and Pfizer vaccines for the under five and. Um, we understand that at least one, if not two, vaccines will be licensed for those age groups. Um, we'll, we're going to hear more robust discussion. There are some issues around side effects, reactogenicity of one of the vaccines. So we'll 
it'll be an interesting discussion, but we do think they're going to move forward. So for all of those people whose kids want to go on vacation this summer, we're hopeful that there will be a vaccine in about two weeks or so. Well, great. At our next dialogue, I might bring as a guest participant, my two-year-old uh, granddaughter, Madeline, uh, uh, who is waiting for her first vaccine. So uh, what, what, it's been a great discussion today. Um, I think we've touched on some, some really important issues having to do with um, the, kind of the new variants, a lot of uh, information on treatment with Paxlovid, uh, et cetera. Uh, we talked about the vaccines, monkeypox, and uh, really, really useful stuff. And uh, we had you know up to 180 people um, uh, participating in this call. So thank Thanks uh, to all those people for, for their participation. Thanks to the uh, ISUSA for helping bring us together. And uh, on your screen now, I think you see the upcoming, uh, the links to the, to the discussions. And I'll, I'll especially thank uh, Carlos, Peter, and Bonnie for, uh, for their continued participation in these. Um, it's, been, it's been really useful. So. Uh, stay tuned, and uh, we might very well be back with more dialogues in the future. So, uh, again, thank you very much. Thank you, Jose.